One of the favorite things for us to talk about on this show is difficult moments in the biblical narrative. Things that cause us concern or things that raise ethical flags or things that lead us to doubt the goodness of God as we read it in the biblical narrative. So we've talked about hell, we've talked about the creation narratives, we've talked about generally the confusing nature of the biblical narrative, but above all of those maybe, maybe the most confusing, maybe the most difficult, maybe the hardest to handle is the moments of the Old Testament where it feels like God is ordaining or even prescribing violence. Now, logically, these moments are difficult for a lot of reasons. It's difficult to read about war and bloodshed in any context for any reason, no matter how justified we think one side of the conflict is. But these moments in the Old Testament, where it seems like God is ordaining and prescribing violence, feel more difficult. It feels like they are violating something, something that is good and pure. And most certainly, that's partially connected to our understanding of modern ethics. But I think it's even deeper than that and more fundamental than that, because for many of us who love and follow Jesus, these moments feel like a violation of him, of his character, of his person. So not only does it feel wrong on some kind of ethical standard, but it also feels like it compromises the person that we're trying to follow. This isn't a new feeling. In just the first century after Jesus, a church leader named Marcion felt so strongly about this issue, this compromising of the person of Jesus by the Old Testament God, that he entirely rejected the Hebrew Bible, or what we know as the Old Testament, believing that the God of the Old Testament, this God of violence and of wrath, was some kind of lower being. This argument was so compelling even then, in the ancient world, the church had to do a ton of work to combat it. Fifty years later, Marcion's ideas were still popular. So much so that the church father, Tertullian wrote a five-volume series against Marcion to slow the roll of these ideas. And the thing is, Marcion may be long dead, but his question isn't. How do we deal with the violence of the Old Testament and the goodness of Jesus? This question is so pervasive that just this year, Greg Boyd, who is a famous pastor and theologian, published a massive two-volume series trying to explore the violence of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus and his crucifixion. And he's not alone. John Walton just published a massive work on violence in the Old Testament, and you can find other examples. If I was to grossly boil down the answers to the question that I have seen, I would say there is two big categories. The first one is that God is always justified in what he's doing. Maybe because God is perfectly good, therefore all he does is good. And so therefore he is justified in the violence of the Old Testament because God only does what is good. And so if we're going to follow him, if we're going to obey him, then we need to change the way we see his actions, what goodness is, what violence is, and maybe even who the people of the Old Testament are, right? God is always justified. So we have to trust him in that. Now, part of me gets that. 
And part of me agrees with that, I guess. I want to trust God, and I want to trust what he's doing in the Old Testament, and I want to trust that he is always justified in what he does. But at the same time, it still feels like Marcion's question is underneath that. Would the God that we see in Jesus, who is the image of God, who is the perfect representation of God, would he live that out that way? Maybe he is justified, but would he? The second option that I'm seeing pop up quite a bit lately would suggest that God is not in any way responsible for the violence of the Old Testament. That the stories of conquest and violence against the Canaanites is actually Israel's political propaganda. That they have taken the narrative and rewritten it for their own agenda, including God, so that they might justify their conquest and invasion. And so in this story, God's not involved. It's simply revisionist history. If part of me, just like in the first option, resonates with this, because I can believe it. Because I can believe that Israel would rewrite history to include God in order to justify their atrocious acts. I can believe that because all victors rewrite history. So why wouldn't they? But at the same time, it doesn't explain moments like Jericho. And it doesn't explain how a slave people who had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years would all of a sudden become a force of might. It doesn't explain the history. There's just too many unanswered questions about how Israel could do what it is they did without the help of God. At the end of the day, these two answers leave us with a lot of unresolved questions and tension. And neither really deal with the mystery or the difficulty underneath the text, the feeling that grips us as we read it. And so for a lot of us, we just feel stuck or bogged down. Maybe we're afraid of the text or we're actually afraid of the God of the Old Testament. Or for others, these answers aren't good enough and the text is offensive enough that we just reject it altogether. Personally, this is a hard one for me. As we come to the end of the episode, I'll talk more about why, but it is one that I wrestle with regularly. But what I am coming to believe, at least at this moment, is that the answer is just more complicated than either of those two solutions give us. And when I say that, I do mean that it's better and that there is good news included in that complicated answer, but that it is also hard. And it, it is hard in ways that will challenge us. It'll challenge the way we see God, the way that we see the Bible, the way that we see conflict and violence in our own world, and the way that we respond to it. It'll be hard. But hopefully true. And more importantly than anything else, hopefully it'll help us see God as he really is. My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, a podcast exploring theology and culture like it matters, because it does. In today's episode, we are beginning a two-part series exploring Israelites' conquest of Canaan, or the Promised Land, with the hopes of answering the question, did God prescribe violence, catastrophic, mythic, genocidal violence in the Old Testament? 
To help us answer this question and to walk through the biblical narrative and the violence we see there, we're interviewing Josh Butler, who you will probably remember from episode four and five. Josh is a pastor, and he wrote a book called Skeletons in God's Closet, which deal with some of the most difficult issues in the Bible, hell, judgment, and holy war. In this first episode, Josh is going to walk through what he calls the story of the conquest, which includes, for him, three paradigm shifts that need to happen for us to understand it the way that it should be. Then in the next episode, he's going to deal specifically with the what he calls drastic marching orders, those big moments of conquest that seem to be commanded by God. I started the interview with Josh with just the well, easiest question I could think of. How could we believe in a God who commands the genocidal slaughter of the Canaanites? There's a couple, you know, I think a couple paradigm shifts that, that are helpful to just try and reframe. Because even the language there, you know, a lot of people would just kind of jump to going genocidal slaughter, right? Like, which is really loaded language for us to bring these images of the Nazis and the concentration camps and uh, the Bosnian War. And when we hear holy war, we think of terrorists today and ISIS and all. And we, so I think we come to the text of Scripture, we come to the Old Testament with a lot of assumptions. We sort of assume that's what's happening, and then we try and figure some way to juggle around, uh, you know, like why God might be justified in doing that or whatever else. But I want to, I guess I want to contest the assumption that that's what's happening. So I, I think one of the first things we need to do is just sort of step back and go, what's the overarching story that's happening in Israel's encounter with Canaan. And there are um, some really big shifts. So I, I think what can first be able to talk about is the overarching story. We say this every single time that we're studying the Bible or looking at an event within it. And it may sound repetitive or pedantic or even like we're trying to avoid the topic, but it is so important that we get this in our head. If we want to understand what is happening in the ancient world of the ancient text, the Bible, we have to step back Stop viewing it through modern lenses and let the text be what it is, an ancient story about ancient people who thought about the world in ancient ways. Meaning all of those notions that we have about the modern world need to be suspended for a moment so that we can see what's actually happening. To the bigger context, when, when most people think of Holy War today, I think we tend to think of the strong using the gods justify their conquest of the weak. Uh, they're the strong. They're going to kind of use God or the gods to say, hey, we're justified in going in and conquering our neighbors and taking their stuff. And uh, I think it's at first significant to recognize that uh, man, in the Old Testament, Israel is the opposite of the strong. They are the weak. And I would say that what's happening here is God, it's God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong when it's raged for far too long. That it's to think about who Israel is, they're a nation of slaves, ragtag group of slaves who've been getting their tails kicked by the mightiest imperial power, you know, by Egypt, uh, by one of the mightiest imperial powerhouses in the ancient world. And they're going up against the strong, the superpowers of the day. So we've got uh, an outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned, ragtag nation of slaves going up against the mightiest empires of the ancient world. Um, so the power dynamics here are kind of in the opposite direction of what we assume. So maybe the first important thing to get about what Josh is saying is that Israel is weak. We want to envision them as strong or as a normal military force, but they're just not. They're weak. 
They're slaves or former slaves who've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they engage in the conflict. And so that means at least we have to rethink them and see them in a different light. And so Joshua introduced three metaphors that he thinks are the way we tend to see ancient Israel or any force that's engaging in holy war. And so he'll refer to it as machine gun, muscle bound heroes. They're people with sophisticated military technology. They have all of the right techniques and strategies for war. And they see themselves as heroes. Those are the metaphors. And all of those fail to take into account history. So if we think first about like machine guns, weaponry, Israel has no weaponry. Like you said, like Canada, they've got like horses and chariots, which would be the ancient equivalent of like tanks and AK-47s, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they have got all the advanced firepower. And Israel, it's not like there was a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them in the wilderness and they left Egypt, right? Like yeah, totally. they're coming in with sticks and stones or whatever they made all the metal together. And so Israel, I think, is something like a kindergartner taking on the high school senior class with a whiffle bat. So like, doesn't have the right weaponry. And then if we think about things like their defense systems, Canaan has high fortified military outposts like Jericho. Um, Israel's defense system is a small wooden box that she built in the wilderness, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And its significance is that God's presence goes with her, that he is her defense against those who are out to crush her. Then we think about generals. Uh, Canaan has generals who've been practicing their strategy on you know, conquering and assimilating surrounding peoples for generations. Uh, Israel's generals have been kind of fending off snakes in the wilderness, right? They don't have the experience or expertise that Canaan has. Um, Think about armor. Canaan has high-tech metal armor, the best in the ancient world. Israel, we're told, like, she's wearing the same ratty clothes she's been wandering around in the wilderness with for 40 years. Um, So, yeah, like, Israel, and we think about the warriors themselves, like, Israel's like, I don't know, storming Fort Knox with a water pistol. Like she's coming in and the the warriors themselves have like, you know, Canaan's described as a land of giants who've been feasting on the land flowing with milk and honey, you know? And so they've got wealth and affluence and all the psychological competence that that brings. Uh, whereas Israel is this like comparative nation of runts. Like they're marching in like ants under elephant's feet. Um, so in the Psalms, it said, uh, in the Psalms, you hear their battle cry. It's, man, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The rulers say we need it. You know they always do. They paint their foes as savages and protesters as fools. You say you don't believe it. I think you know it's true. These people are not enemies. They've done nothing to you. I think that's like Israel's motto is going... The surrounding superpowers, they've got the militarization, they've got the massive defense budget, they've got their jet fighters and, you know, uh, subversive technology, whatever, you know, they've got their spies hitting around the world. But what we have, we trust in the name of God who fights on our behalf. money 
And armies drawn by fear They plunder the productive And leave the good in tears Conflict can be ended Peace begins with me When I lay down my weapons And let virtue conquer greed Josh writes in his book something that I think is really helpful. He says, quote, This way of thinking is antithetical to mainstream holy war. You expect the grade school bully to take on the weakling with lunch money. You don't expect him to take on the high school wrestling team. You expect a pirate to capture the vessel lost at sea. You do not expect him to declare open war on the Spanish Armada. And you expect a third world dictator to abuse scattered dissenters. But you don't expect him to hop in his personal jet and take on the U.S. Air Force. To do so would be psychotic, unless something fundamentally different is happening here." End quote. Israel is not a bully, or the pirate, or the dictator, invoking the gods to justify her conquest of the weak. Israel is the very opposite. They are the weakling. They're the ones who've been having the advantage taken of them. They're the ones who have been slaves. They're the ones whose lunch money has been demanded every single day. She is a little nation whose vessel has been under constant attack by pirates. She is the dissenter amongst the nations, getting railed on by the dictator. Israel is the weak one. And not just by a little bit. Canaan is a whole category stronger. Their firepower puts them in a different league. Israel should get routed. Her only hope is in God. This isn't political justification for the sake of propaganda. It is necessity for the sake of survival. That, you know, and uh, then I think if we move from weaponry to strategy, kind of the, the muscle bound feature, like they don't, Israel does not have strength or strategy on her side. Mm-hmm. So when we think about uh, their strategies, almost all of like Israel's strategies with Canaan look ridiculous consistently. So if you think about like the Battle of Jericho, right, the first battle going into the promised land, and the, um, you know, they're going up against heavily fortified military outposts and they're waiting for the battle strategy and they wait for it and wait for it. And God's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to march around the walls for seven days and blow trumpets, right? That is a stupid battle strategy. <laughs> like, uh, you know, if you think about like World War II, the allied forces, you know, like invading, storming the beaches of Normandy with rock guitars and drums, it would be... <laughs> They'd be a laughing stock, right? And so we see that Jericho, that's the first battle, but it's not the exception, it's the norm. You look at the Battle of Gideon, and God's like, hey, send 99% of your soldiers home when they're already extremely outnumbered uh, by the Midianites. And we see, uh, you know, just time after time again, uh, the strategies that Israel is given by God. I, I think they look ridiculous, but they actually look that way for a purpose. Like they're designed to show that God is fighting on behalf of his people. Unless God shows up, like they don't stand a chance. Mm -hmm. Did you pay attention to what he just said? 
The battle strategies of Israel, like surrounding Jericho with musical instruments, they don't make any sense. And they are actually not supposed to make any sense. Because this story, the story of conquest, the story of Israel entering into the promised land, of waging war against greater and mightier adversaries, it is not about Israel. It's not about Israel's might. And it is most certainly not about Israel taking on the empire for God or in the name of God. Instead, the conquest, it's, it's a theological story about what God is doing, about how God is taking on the empire for Israel. I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating that the biblical narrative, especially this far back as we look at the conquest of the Canaanites, it is not a story in conversation with modern peoples and modern understandings of the world. Instead, it is in conversation with ancient people groups and the ancient neighbors of Israel. So these stories, their reference point or their larger, broader context is these ancient people groups, these ancient Worlds And in that ancient world, civilizations would wage war in the name of their God. And if they won, and if they're victorious, then it would prove the strength of their God. But Israel's story is intending to be very different than that. It's intending to show the weakness of Israel, to show their inability. In fact, the Bible actually says that Israel doesn't enter the land because they are so great. Instead, the theological claim that this is making is aimed towards those neighbors to show them that Israel's God really is God. That he's not just stronger, but that he actually is better. Uh, They don't see themselves as heroes. There's constant emphasis that, uh, hey, just know for certain as you go into the land, it's not because of your greatness. Um, It's not because you had the numbers or, uh, you know, God says, my affection my affection for you is not because of your greatness, because you have the numbers, like in Deuteronomy 7 and 9. Um, but God emphasizes the wickedness of the people already in the land. And to, to hear how the radical that, that would have sounded then, I think it even sounds radical today. Like there's the motto, the victors write the history books. And what that means is like, dude, if you win the battle, you get to tell how it went down. Right? So the victors tended to depict themselves as strong and heroic and courageous and noble and brave. And, and um, Israel's Old Testament history books like read in the opposite direction. Like she's constantly talking about how fearful and idolatrous and unbelieving and disobedient rebellious she is. So it's almost like Israel hired a reporter to walk with her around through the wilderness and, um, you know, take all of her mistakes and weaknesses and blast them all over the pages of the Old Testament. So so just as a starting point, you know, I, I think just to say that there's something radically subversive about what's going on with Israel and Canaan in the Old Testament. This is not our assumption of what mainstream holy war looks like. It's actually, I think, confronting mainstream holy war in our world with a, a very different depiction. So, if you want to fight a real Israelite-style holy war, here's what you do. First, throw away your armor. Second, burn your tactical training books and great strategy. Three, find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons you can. 
Four, find military leaders with massive issues and little experience. Five, hire a reporter to meticulously track all your flaws and failures. Six, boast your enemies about how backward your civilization is. Seven, go find the biggest, baddest superpower who will surely kick your tail. Eight, pick a fight. Nine, walk out to the middle of the battlefield. Ten, pray that God shows up. So uh, what is it supposed to show us? You know, I do think that some of the implications for today, I actually argue it can be a great source of hope for today. And and what I mean by that is, Hmm. um, you know, if we zoom out to what's happening, I think there's this picture where uh, God is patient with Canaan for over 400 years. We read in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, like, the reason you and your people can't be here yet is because I'm being patient with the Amorites, the people who are here in the land. But after 400 years, it's going to get so bad that my patience will run out, basically, right? So, so God is extremely patient with the empires of our world. Um, that's good news that God's patient with us, right? But it's also good news that his patience will not last forever, right? Like that mm. if you are the oppressed today, if you are the downtrodden, when I look at global empire and the powerhouses of our world today, and we see often the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden who are just crushed under the feet of our international economy and we see as much as ever like the you know the the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer and that's just a reality that marks our world and it's good news for our world that god's patient but it's also good news that his patience will not last forever especially if you're one of the ones getting trampled by the system so to speak right you know and and so i think it offers tremendous hope for our world that um, yes, God is being patient with the powers of our world, but the day will arise when God arises on behalf of the weak, the exploited, the oppressed. God will tear down Babylon and establish his kingdom in its place, uh, an alternative kingdom that actually where, you know, the blessed are those who suffer and mourn and are persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of God that's coming. So. At that level, I, I believe that there it's actually a source of hope for today. In the ancient world, I think it's this picture where God is declaring to the mightiest, wickedest, nastiest, bloodiest powerhouse empires of the ancient world that this is the kind of God he is. He's a God who stands up for the weak, the exploited, the last and the least, the hmm. runt, the slaves, you know, the world that God uh, ultimately will arise in their behalf and say, you know, what you've done unto them, you've done unto me. And there's a reckoning that comes, you know. And, that's Jesus, Matthew 25. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's Jesus's vision. It's not something that gets displaced by Jesus, but fulfilled in Jesus. Um, is a vision of the kingdom that radically reverses and turns the tables on the kingdoms of this world. I want to end our conversation today here. We're going to continue talking about holy war in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. Questions about the drastic marching orders that are given to the people of Israel as they go into Canaan orders about genocide or that feel like they're about genocide. 
But I want to end here because I think that Josh has posed an important question. And I said this at the beginning, but this is where my struggle with holy war in the Old Testament becomes so real. And here's what I mean. I want to believe that God would never be violent. Part of me resonates with that notion so much. And maybe it's because of what I see in Jesus on the cross, that every time someone is violent towards him, he absorbs it into himself and gives grace and life in its return. And so I want to see that in the Old Testament. But I wonder if that is the right thing to see. Like, is it truly the best way to see God? Is it actually truly good to see God that way? Or do I want that? Because I live in a position of privilege that can afford to want that. I've been thinking about this, specifically in context of the way that white people tell the story of the Civil War. We often see it as a tragedy. This big wound in America's soil where we fought each other and we turned on each other. And so it's this weird tragedy that we're apologizing for and yet also a moment that we weirdly celebrate in movies like Gone with the Wind. And yet, for another group of people, the Civil War is their revolutionary war because millions of people were set free who had been the object of derision, scorn, and slavery for centuries. And I wonder if that is also true of what we do with the Old Testament, that for some of us who live in a position of privilege and power, far away from the oppressive reigns of the Canaanites or the Egyptians, we can look at this moment and say it was tragedy. But if you were there, if you suffered underneath it, it wasn't. You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the show or our church, check out our website at www.missiotah.com. In a few weeks, uh, near the end of October, we will continue this conversation with Josh and we'll explore some of the big questions that remain unanswered, like how do you deal with the drastic marching orders of the story? And then what does it mean for us? Josh pointed that it means hope in some ways, but what does it mean in terms of how we think about war or the role of the church even in the conflict? Thanks for listening. Check back soon for a new episode at the end of October. And in the meantime, share this episode with somebody you think has these questions or needs to have this conversation or someone you just want to have this conversation with. And go and review us on iTunes. It really helps. Thanks. Thanks.